fairly late in the evening when finally it was clear to me what I should share with you, so I'm going to entitle this message, Elijah's Legacy. Of course, you've heard of Elijah, one of the great prophets of the Bible, the man who parted the Jordan River, the man so beloved by God that he didn't even die a natural death, a chariot scooped him up and took him to heaven, the man who multiplied food, broke a three-and-a-half-year drought, and called down fire from heaven at command. Yet, like many great men, and for that matter, women before him, he died with a mission unfulfilled. Prophecies not yet come to pass. And so when we talk about his legacy, his greatest legacy was not the prophecies he gave or the miracles that he worked. It was a small select group of humans that he left behind from every segment in society who he was able to transfer the anointing of God on his life to. As much as I love watching Pastor Brett speak, so anointed to speak the word of the Lord, you know that as your pastor, Jim Critcher speak, we don't exist to be anointed. We exist to equip you to be anointed. The greatest legacy of this church is not that astonishing building you'll finish. It's your lives. We find in Ephesians 2.10, it's one of the only two verses we have in the New Testament, then we'll be in First and Second Kings, it says, we are God's handiwork. How many of you know God's been working on you? Raise your hand. How many of you don't like it sometimes? We should like work a little less on you. You feel like, man, are you stuck in my letter in the alphabet? Okay. We're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, created for something. God is not just working on you. He has a work for you to do. It goes on to say, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Before you were born, the Bible says, God knew you. Not only did he know you, he's not just preparing you for a work. From before there was an earth, he was preparing a work for you to do. I don't know what your birth family might have been like, or for that matter, whether it was a biological family, you, maybe you were raised, you were a stepchild to someone, maybe... You were fatherless. Maybe you weren't legitimate in the eyes of the world. But I'll tell you this. God knew you, loved you, and has a reason for you. And one of the reasons we're here at Grace Covenant Church is found in Ephesians 4.12. It says people like apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers and pastors are called of God to equip people like you for works of service. What does that mean? We are here. Yes, to make disciples. Yes, to reach this great metro area. But we're also here to help you discover why you were born and to prepare you for that. Now, I want to take that principle and talk about Elijah. When we pick up the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, 14, he's in tremendous pain. And here is why. He's had the greatest moment in his whole life. In one moment, he's called down fire from heaven seeing the core of Baal-worshipping prophets wiped out and broken a three-and-a-half-year drought. As he fell to his knees and prayed, it began to rain for the first time in three-and-a-half years. He was so strengthened by God's Spirit that he outran the king's chariot, a very wicked king, for 14 miles to announce what God had done. When he went to bed that night, he thought his problems were over. He'd been hunted for three-and-a-half years by agents of the king because of the drought. Surely, he thought, with all these signs, a nation will turn. He awakened the next morning with a message from the queen, a queen by the name of Jezebel. 
equally wicked to her husband, known for immorality and amorality, known for fostering a religion where a sex act with a prostitute was considered worship, and the child from that relationship would be burned alive in fire as a sacrifice. He woke up to hear her say, if you're not dead in 24 hours, I'm not queen. There's probably no worse pain than doing your best, functioning at the optimum level, and realizing it did no real good. Ever been there? I tried as hard as I could in my marriage, my job, life, school. It didn't make a difference. And now he's run into the wilderness. He comes, the Bible says, and you can look at that one later, lays under a broom tree, which is kind of a, a beautiful tree you found in oases in that part of the world in deserts. He lays down and says, I'm no better than all the prophets before me. I'm no better than all my relatives. Kill me. Let me die. Done all he can. As he lays there and falls asleep, hoping not to wake up. If you've ever been so depressed you don't want to wake up, I've been there. How many of you know that's a terrible feeling? Like if wake up seems an option. An angel wakes him up, however, and prepares a heavenly meal for him twice. On the strength of that meal, he runs 40, years, 40 days into the desert. That's some serious bread. I need some of that right now. 40 days in the desert. He runs to Mount Horeb, which is the mountain there where Moses received the Ten Commandments. In the English Bible, it says he went into a cave, but in the Hebrew, it says he went into the cave, and many scholars believe he went into the very cave, cleft, whatever you want to call it, where God put his hand over Moses, and the glory came. He was desperate to hear God. And here's what he told God when he got there. He describes his pain, and you can read it perfectly for yourself. In 1 Kings 19, 14, he says, listen, they hate you in this nation. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they want to kill me. Now, he lost perspective because there were 7,000 more people in the nation, you find in that passage, that still love God. But how many of you know out of a whole nation, 7,000 is not a lot? And here's what God's answer. You can read it for yourself in 1 Kings 19, 15 through 17. God says, Elijah, listen now. I'm going to send you back. But I've got a plan. You've been as anointed as you can, and it's curbed the darkness in a nation. But if you really want to see this nation transformed, if you really want to see the passion of your heart consummated, here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to transfer your anointing. You have to transfer the power on your life to three humans. The first one is a young businessman named Elisha, an incredible entrepreneur, large agricultural business, 12 yoke of oxen you find in the Bible working in his fields. He was so wealthy. And God said, put your anointing on that young man, and he'll become a prophet. Strange, God ignored all the prophetic schools. He said, then I want you to go and find a young man named Haziel or send someone to do it for you. Haziel was a young court official in a neighboring nation, many times their enemy. He'll become king. And then I want you to find a young army commander. His name is Jehu. And you're to place your anointing on him. And that young army commander will become the king of Israel. He'll wipe out Ahab. He'll wipe out Jezebel. He'll save the nation. You see, we share that passion here. Brett, Jim, myself, others here, Danelle, we know that the only way to change this world is to transfer, transmit the same anointing on our lives to you. <coughs> Kathy and I have seven children. 
One of them is in what you'd call ministry. That's Peter, who lives in the city of Mathurak on the Syrian border. He and his wife honor their missionaries and aid workers out of this church, for that matter, ministering to thousands of Syrian refugees, making disciples. The rest of my children are everywhere from a consulting firm in Singapore to leading a corporation in Silicon Valley to MBA school in London. It just goes on and on. There's seven of them. I can barely keep track of them. They live in four different countries, different cities. But Andrew, my oldest, started a corporation when he got out of Berkeley Engineering School that's done very well. Forbes magazine's talked about it, this and that, and it's really growing. But, but the reason it is is not because he's just so bright. He just had a business degree. It's really the anointing and grace of God in his life. And Andrew was raised to understand the same anointing. Daddy has to be a pastor. You'll have to be a CEO one day. Called me one day, and he was, he was some of the biggest venture capitalists in the world were dealing with him, wanting to finance this business round it all these Harvard MBAs, and he goes, man, Daddy, he goes, I don't have a business degree. All these people are smarter than me. What do I do? I said, what do you do? Go to a park, take an hour out, read your Bible, wait on God and pray and see what happens. And time and time again, the anointing of God has given that boy and all my kids the wisdom they've needed in every sphere of life. The anointing of God's not just for pastors and preachers. It's for you. Now, if you were to receive that anointing, what would it be like? How would it work? I want to Put the periscope down in one of these three people, and his name is Jehu. Elijah gave a powerful prophecy about everything that would happen. You can read that prophecy in 1 Kings 21, 17 through 24, but it would be fulfilled by a man named Jehu. Now, Jehu had four encounters that we're going to talk about in the next 12 to 15 minutes. And in these four encounters, he did what he needed to do and received what he needed to receive to have the anointing to be the man God called him to be. I want to suggest to you today that God has these same encounters for you. He wants to anoint you. The first one, he had to face the reality of how God defined him. You can read the story for yourself in 2 Kings 9, 4 through 13. He had no royal blood. Maybe he would be the equivalent of a young lieutenant colonel with the battalion. I'm not sure the rank structure of that time in Israel's history. And Elisha, who had hands laid in by Elijah, now gone to heaven, said, there's a, there's a commander there named Jehu, told another prophet, go find him and anoint him to be king. When Jehu woke up that day, there was no thought in his mind he'd be king. There was no thought in his mind that he'd be the savior of a nation. Many of you can't imagine what God has for you. You've defined yourself for too long by the wounds in your soul, not by the word of God. You've defined yourself too long by what some broken human told you instead of what comes out of the mouth of God or one of his servants. The prophet showed up at the headquarters, the commanders looking around. Commander! They all raised their hand, four or five young commanders. Which one of us? You. Jehu's heart almost stopped. What's this crazy prophet want with me? Pulled him out of the room. Next thing he knew, he was pouring oil and saying... You're the king starting today. God says it. It's a fact. And you'll fulfill every prophecy God has given my, 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 our father, Elijah. You'll fulfill them. Jehu's shaken. No army. No influence. Young man is going to face a despot who makes a hobby out of killing his rivals. Shaking on the inside. He comes out to his friends. They go, man, what did that crazy prophet say to you? He said, I'd be king. His friends believed and crowned him king. So he was king of five friends. Now, you know, many times 
one of the mark that God is at work in your life is it seems impossible. If you can imagine what God's called you to do, being accomplished without his help, God may not have called you. God rarely calls us into fair fights. they typically crazy. But you've got to face the fact, this is how God defines me. This is what God says about my marriage, about my life, about my business. You will live your life either on your wounds or on the word of God. What's God say about you? I'll never forget as a young man of 22, a prophet pulled me out of our mega church of 80 people off the back row. In front of all those, that giant crowd of people, he prophesied, you will go to the nations of the world. You will prophesy over leaders. I will use you here and there. That was, you know, what, 36 years ago. No one in that room believed it, including me. My pastor probably thought, God, that's definitely mistaken identity there. <laughs> Fact of it is, that's all been fulfilled. Now, once he rumbled off, and said, okay, I received what God was going to say. He'd have three other encounters, one with a man named Joram, one with a woman named Jezebel, and one with a man named Jehonadab. The first one's found in, in 2 Kings 9, 14 through 26. Joram was the son of Ahab. He was part of the despotic family that was ruling a nation, murderer, brutal, immoral, hate-filled. And what young Joram, with an army of four or five, is on the way to overthrow his kingdom scared to death. Sooner or later, once God calls you, you're going to have to face the thing that's mastered your soul and mastered your family for years. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's a fear of finance. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's some bitterness in your soul, some wound in you. You feel, man, this thing just has me down. Now, here's what's incredible. is young Joram is in that chariot with four or five friends going to take over a whole kingdom. He rumbles over a piece of ground, and as he's rumbling over that ground, Joram the king and his entourage is coming to meet him. But all of a sudden, Jehu realizes, wait a minute. This is the plot of ground when I was a lieutenant. I was with Ahab, and Ahab, the father of Joram, had murdered an innocent man, and the prophet Elijah confronted him right here and said, because you murdered an innocent man, you and your family will be wiped out. God will give your kingdom to another. And when he realized he was on the spot of God's promise, when he realized he was on the place where God had spoken, when he realized that was the very ground God had described, faith entered his heart, and he realized God said it, it must be true. And he pulled out a bow and killed the king with one arrow. And the kingdom began to fall with the king. Sooner or later, you're going to confront something bigger than you, something stronger than you. And the only place of victory is the place where God's word is spoken. You've got to bring. Listen, my wife had cancer twice. We brought her to the promise of God's word. We've Adam's had two sons die, brought them to the promise of God's word. When I was dying of hepatitis, my parents brought me to the promise of God's word. No matter what you're facing, like Joram, you've got to realize this is the spot, this is the very plot that God spoke that I would have victory on. And if you'll face your enemies on the promise of God, if you'll face your enemies with the principles of God, if you'll bring them to what the word says, they will fall. Sooner or later, you're going to face that which has dominated you that which has mastered you, that which has come against you. And if you'll face it with the word, face it on the spot of God's promise, nothing can stop you. He rumbles on. Now all of a sudden he's starting to win, so the entourage is growing. More people, man, he's killed the king, maybe he'll be king. But he's got someone waiting for him, and her name is Jezebel. 
The Bible says Jezebel dominated a nation with her beauty, her seduction, and her witchcraft. How many of you know we live in an immoral nation? A nation where the average 12-year-old boy, 90% of has been exposed to terrible porn. Where 4 out of 10 young women are sexually abused by the age of 24. A nation rife with brokenness and pain. It says of Jezebel, when she heard he was coming, after murdering her son, she never worried. She just fixed her hair, put the more eyeshadow on, and got a smile and looked out the window. That gaze had broken every man. That gaze had seduced a nation. It says Jehu came up. He looked up in her window, and he says Jehu realized, I may be a strong man, but I got a feeling there's some things in me that aren't going to let me conquer her, and if I go up there to kill her, I'm good as dead. He realized that's too much for me. It's pretty profound what happens here. All of a sudden, he just yells, who is on my side? In other words, is there some other human that can stand with me and help me defeat this seduction and set this nation free? The Bible says there were three eunuchs up there with her. They're pretty much invincible to her charms. They picked her up, threw her to the ground, and she died in fulfillment of Elijah's prophecy. Let me tell you something. Sooner or later, you're going to face something where you're going to need a man or woman of God to help you. There are things in your life you're just not going to face alone. And when you come into crisis, when I come into crisis and I go, who's on my side? Brett and Jim Critcher are right there. They're my friends of decades. Who about, how about you? When you face that thing that's hurt you, when you face that thing that's broken your family, dominated your life, and you say, who is on my side? Who comes running? What pastor do you know? What person is involved in your life? If you're going to become the man or woman God's called you to be, you better have a godly man. You better have a godly woman, depending on your gender, at your side. Who's on my side? Who's there to help me? Who are you honest with? Jezebel dies, and all of a sudden, he's the man of the hour. His entourage is growing. Everyone wants to follow him. He's got power. He's got strength. He's got grace. And all of a sudden, he's coming into dangerous territory. It's called success. Success is many times the most dangerous thing you'll face. Because once you begin to be successful, the need that brought you to God in the first place is typically alleviated. Your marriage is better. Your life is better. You signed the big contract. Your business has done well. You finished school. You're the man. You're the woman. By this time, there's a giant entourage, and he's on the way to finish conquering his kingdom. And as he's rumbling down the road, it brings us to my last point, he had to meet and defer to a man named Jehonadab. Imagine, he's in his limo, cars everywhere, blue lights flashing, bodyguards, I mean photographers. He's on the way to take his kingdom, and he looks out the window and sees an old man walking slowly down the side of the road. He realizes immediately, that's Jehonadab, son of Rechab. Jehonadab son of Rechab was an older man known as the most holy man in the whole country. Not one of his children, sons or daughters or grandchildren, had left the faith in that hour of declension. They thought he was crazy when he told his whole family, move out of Jerusalem, live in the desert, live in the rural areas, the city will corrupt you, and don't drink and you'll make it. Made no sense, except now his family had stood strong. All of a sudden he realized, I've got all this success, but who will tell me the truth? I've got all the successes, but is there anyone around me I can trust with my heart? Is there anyone that will speak to me about my life, my marriage? He slammed on the brakes of that chariot. You can read the story for yourself. And he looked out. He said, Jehonadab, I like how you live. 
But if you think I'm living right, I beg you, take my hand right now. Most men or women in the middle of success, they'll never slow down enough to ask anyone for help. Slammed down that chariot. Jehonadab took his hand and he said, Jehonadab, please help me. He pulled him into that chariot and said, I want you to watch. Read it for yourself. I want you to watch everything I do and tell me if you approve. You see, success comes in our life. Blessing comes. Oh, we're just on the way. But how easy it is to forget it was God and his people that ensured that success. You come to that place in life where the very reasons that brought you to Christ have now been satisfied. And you're going to find out, did you want him because you needed help or did you want him because of him? And when you come to that place, no matter what your profession, no matter what your place in life, no matter what your walk in life, your ability to slow your life down and say to one of these pastors or small group leaders or some mature Christian, man, I need your help. Come take a look. You know, I, I spent a lot of time as my pastor trying to chase people down that needed my help and didn't realize it. Rare was the man or woman who said, Pastor, I beg you, please help me. Pastor, I beg you. I mean, my life seems to go in well, but that worries me even more. Can you hold me accountable? Can you speak into my life? Let me summarize this as Pastor Jim joins me up here. At the very essence of this church is our heart to see you anointed in the sphere and segment of society God's called you in. It's our heart not just for Jim or Brett to be anointed, but for the anointing of God to rest on you, whatever your profession is, whatever your place of life is. You know where that starts, though? You allowing God to define who you are. Not that wound in you. God's word through bread, reading the word, hearing what God says, confronting the things that have mastered you, walking in moral purity, and allowing men and women in your life to disciple you and help you. If you want what I'm describing today, if you want the anointing I'm describing, raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you right now. Holy Spirit, help these great people. Lord, I thank you for this church. I'm asking right now that by your spirit and power, you would move on each and every one of these men and women. And God, the anointing they see demonstrated here every Sunday, let them experience it in every area of their life.